Good afternoon and thank you so much for being with us on this Tuesday. Coming up on the program, we are going to talk more about what it means to shift to potentially a people-focused gas town. An upcoming motion at Vancouver City Council looks at bringing more pedestrians to that community. We're also going to be taking a look at the Hollywood writers strike. We know that late night shows have gone to reruns. Well, what else is going to happen because of that? We are starting out though with a story and a warning right off the top. This story has several graphic details and some listeners might find some of these details disturbing. Talking about the death of Miles Gray. This happened after a severe beating by Vancouver police officers. That has now been deemed a homicide by a BC coroner's inquest jury. The finding was delivered yesterday. It comes after 11 days of testimony about the arrest and the death of the 33-year-old. Gray died in August of 2015. This happened after officers responded to a 911 call about an agitated man who had sprayed a woman with a garden hose. The beating took place during his his arrest. That beating left him with injuries, including hemorrhaging in his testicles, as well as fractures in his eye socket, nose, and voice box. The coroner told the jury they could classify Gray's death as natural, accidental, suicide, homicide, or undetermined. He said that homicide, which was the finding, the classification, refers to the death due to injury intentionally inflicted by another person, but it is a neutral term that does not imply fault or blame. Well, joining us now to talk more about this is Margie Gray, Miles Gray mother. Margie, thank you so much for being with us. Oh, thank you for having me on your program. I know you were at the inquest all 11 days. We now have a ruling and some recommendations from the coroner's inquest jury. I'm curious first, your response that the jury did in fact deem the death of your son Miles a homicide. That's correct. And when that decision came out, what was your response or what went through your mind hearing that? Uh, we were all very relieved because there's different classifications. There's like suicidal, accidental, undetermined, natural, and homicide. So, of course, we were all very relieved when they say homicide because that is what it was. So we were very relieved. It's been a very long, arduous seven and a half years to get the truth out there about Miles and how he died. And I, the truth is out there now. The truth is out there Wednesday, Thursday, especially when um, Dr. Ord, the pathologist, gave his testimony. And can you remind us again, uh, Dr. Dr. Matthew Ord, the forensic pathologist, uh, he talked about uh, the, the factors that led to Miles's death and, and, and how he felt things unfolded uh, that day in August of 2015. I know it must have been very difficult to hear the pathologist go into that detail, but did it give you some kind of, uh, w- was that the first time publicly that you heard somebody say, these are the facts, this is what happened? Publicly, yes. It's the first public airing that we've had. And, um, I mean, of course, some of the details we knew that he had been handcuffed, hobbled, restrained, and beaten up. However, during the inquest, when the paramedics spoke, um, when the firefighters spoke, there were 
there were incidents that we did not know. We didn't know that Miles was face down, how they had his hands behind him in that submission hold where they lifted his arms up, you know, positional asphyxiation. We did not know they dogpiled on him and prevented him from breathing. We did not know that the paramedics and firefighters were held off. And what the police say was combative was actually Miles fighting for his last breath of life. And that was very disturbing to hear. Hmm. I, I, yeah, I can't imagine being in that room and, and hearing those details. I know the inquest also heard from more than 40 witnesses. There were 14, I believe, Vancouver police officers who spoke at the inquest. Only one of those officers during that time, during the inquest, apologized to you and to the, the Gray family. Was that important to hear that apology? It was, actually. In fact, I was quite shocked because in seven and a half years, it's literally the only apology we have received from anyone. So I believe, as my husband and Melissa, we believe it was actually a heartfelt apology. Um, yeah, it, it, it has been the only apology we've received. Would you have liked to heard other apologies or heard other words from the other officers involved? It would have been nice to acknowledge their wrongdoing in this, for sure. Um, I think it would have been, in my opinion, the best of their interest to actually say, we really messed this up, instead of like hearing narrative after narrative of the same ridiculous stories about my son. You know, I mean, it was really, really difficult to go through and hear how they referred to him as, um, you know, animalistic, barbarian. He was referred to as moving like a box of IKEA furniture. They completely dehumanized my son, and that was very difficult um, to hear. So I would Im imagine, too, going back to, to the pathologist, hearing about more about the, what the autopsy found as far as uh, there what weren't these these. These, um, he wasn't intoxicated by any substance when he died, uh, that, that the actions of the officers, does it kind of at least put Miles maybe out there in the public so the public gets a better idea that, that this wasn't somebody like, like those other horrible ways of, of being described, that, that this is who he was? We knew this all along. We knew this all along. So I've waited seven, we all have waited seven and a half years, his family, his friends, his acquaintances, the people that have been absolutely broken by this event have waited seven and a half years for this public airing of the circumstances surrounding Miles' death. And I think we've had that public airing. <laughs> Um, we know the inquest doesn't assign blame, but again, it did deem the death of Miles a homicide. It also recommended that the police expedite bringing in body cameras for all patrol officers, that they review the crisis de-escalation training and enhance that program, and that they suggested a review of all of the policies and procedures when it comes to toxicology samples and, and how those are, are held. With those recommendations, are, are you pleased with the recommendations? I don't know if that's the right word, but, but, but when you look at that, does that seem like reasonable recommendations from the jury? Um, yes, body cams, absolutely, for sure. That is one thing that we've always thought because, one, 
if there were body cams, we'd actually have video proof. And I doubt very much if there were body cams, that would have not happened that day. And however, in the reverse, if somebody attacks them, then there's video proof of that as well. However, the toxicology just um, confuses me because um, there was one juror that was kind of hung up on the toxicology reports. I mean, his toxicology showed there was nothing present in his blood. Therefore, there's nothing present in his blood. So he seemed really intent on finding something in his blood that didn't exist. So I'm confused by that. I would have actually probably reconsidered the way the mental health people are being treated in society because more and more people are, you know, this is, this is an escalating problem, mental health. And I really do believe that needs to be addressed. Um, uh, yes, that, that is, uh, besides body cams, that is the first thing that really needs to be addressed is how they handle mental crisis interventions, whether that is, is coming up with something new. Um, although even though these police that were involved in Mahal's death, one was a car 87 mental health worker, and I believe another one was a mental health worker, like clearly they didn't follow their own protocols of going in to escalate. They just went in there guns blazing and you know how it went with birds knack. He Miles he he did wasn't told you're under arrest. He didn't know why they were after them. They swarmed him. Birdsnack said, "Get down on your knees." Miles was like, "What the heck?" He didn't pepper sprayed, and then all hell broke loose. So, um, they didn't follow the own protocol of just uh, get you know um, back up, deescalate. The, mm-hmm. You know, uh, there was no escalation until he got pepper sprayed and you can imagine how painful that would be. And that right there was, it it was, it was started from, it was wrong from the inception of how it was handled. Right. And and I mean, you have to go right, you have to go right back to the very beginning. It was a watering hose incident. And I even believe miles was even behind a fence, pull the hose. I don't know exactly what happened, but you have to bring it right, rein it back in to the very beginning of the 911 call. It was, um, it was watering altercation. Hmm. That's it. Yeah. It's, so um, you're right. When when and when you think about that, and and having heard some of those 911 calls, and I know you sat and heard them in the inquest as well. You're right. It, it started out as as a dispute involving a garden hose, not something that anybody should ever lose their life over. Entirely. I mean, Miles walked away. I believe half an hour from that woman's house, and the 911 son walked and followed him. You know, like. He had left there, but they hunted him down and they swarmed him. And um, you couldn't have handled anything. It it was just the worst case scenario. Uh, Margie, I'm... an outcome of a... Yeah, I... I, I'm I'm curious your your thoughts as well. I know that uh, the lawyer representing your family, the Gray family, Ian Donaldson, uh, suggested after this finding, after uh, the coroner's jury came back, suggested that it is possible that the findings of this inquest are enough to reopen the criminal case against the officers. Is that something you would like to see? 
I don't know how it will play out. Um, I'm just, I'm just really exhausted. I think we all are over the two weeks of this inquest. I don't know what the next steps will be. I don't, we don't hold any control over that. And I'll just leave that for um, Donaldson, like Curtis and Ian and Jason, they can sort that out. I, I don't have any control. And I really, at this point, haven't heard anything. Um, is it possible? Yes, it could be possible. I, I don't know. There's, there's seven, in, well, actually, there was 14 involved that day, but I think there's seven of them that were involved in Miles' death. So it could go in seven different directions. I, I really I really can't say as to how it will play out. I don't know. Sure. And and just on a, on a final note, Margie, because people who never met your son only know him through the stories in the media. And now, most recently, this inquest and the findings of this inquest. Um, I'm wondering if you can leave us with uh, how you would describe your son. I know that there have been words uh, used as kind, loyal, a bit goofy. But how would you describe your son to somebody who didn't meet him? I've heard so many stories, like, of how many people he actually helped. He was, uh, you know, just a really positive inspiration. He just wanted everybody just to be happy, laugh. If somebody was having, like, a low point in their life, he would, like, talk to them, walk them through it. Um, He was always there for his friends. Like, if they're, yeah, he was just always there for you. He was, um, he didn't take life too seriously. He just wanted everybody just to be happy. And he was there. Like I, I've heard so many different accounts of people that he has helped along the way and uh, news stories too, which is like, which I love to hear as well, you know? Mm. All right. Well, Margie, we'll leave it there for today, but I so appreciate your time. I know this has been uh, extremely difficult to, to sit through the testimony and hear these details again, but thank you so much for joining me today. Okay. Thank you. There is a motion coming to Vancouver City Council, and the goal of this is to make Gastown more people-focused. ABC Councillor Sarah Kirby-Young is the councillor bringing that forward. One of the uh, uh, sort of actions in the motion is to pilot a car-free shutdown. We can learn a lot from pilots. We did one for the Granville Street Promenade and saw how positive that was. Um, And those can really help inform some of the longer-term planning. So that's the idea behind a pilot. And the other part of the motion I also mentioned was looking at the longer-term reconfiguration of Water Street to a two-way so that uh, this will obviously, this plan and planning process and work would unfold over a number of years. And so that will provide the potential to support a pedestrianized gas town if we can have um, better flow on Water Street. That was Councillor Sarah Kirby-Young speaking earlier today at the news conference to announce this. Wally Wargalet was also there, Executive Director of the Gastown Business Improvement Society. Wally, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me on, Jill. Appreciate it. Well, I know this is a motion that's going to council, but it also sounds like it's getting a lot of support before it even gets to that stage. What are your thoughts on this idea of making Gastown a more people-focused community? Well, this is some of the work that we actually started back in, in 2019, Joe, when we did our urban design study, looking at the overall neighborhood and how do the different various pieces of the public realm all fit together and could there be a a better approach to you know to water street could it be more pedestrian friendly uh the the notion of closing down water street there's a lot of things that have to happen first i think in that clip that you um played um 
Councillor Kirby Young said Water Street to Wayne, but what she really meant was Cordova. So mm. in order for any of this to happen, Cordova would have to become a two-way street um, because there's a transit route that, uh, you know, run, runs through Water Street. So I think that, you know, we're excited because um, for over a decade, uh, this uh, our organization, the Gastown Business Improvement Society, has been working with the city on the Complete Streets Plan and the Transportation 2040 Plan. And there's been lots of talking, but, you know, zero action. And we were really encouraged by this because it's like awesome we're going to now have a comprehensive public realm plan but we're going to go to outside experts we're going to look at economic impacts of the of this potentially on water street you know we also want to take a look at uh, housing uh, market housing around the neighborhood that would also help support this so i, I think this is a, a good step forward and um like i say it's time to stop talking and start to start kind of have to start planning this out uh, do you think there are any potential issues with people being able to get around? I mean, it's one thing if you have close access or you can easily get to a destination, but is there any concern of perhaps people that, that aren't as mobile still being able to access all of the parts of Gastown? Well, I mean, I think the city has done uh, a good job in trying to address those accessibility issues. The, the other thing that we've, as an organization, have focused on in the last couple of years is just the maintenance of the streets, because that has also been an issue. And if you've been down in Gastown, you know, the city has been using asphalt as a repair tool for far too long. And uh, in the last six months, we've seen a, a good chunk of uh, street repairs already start. We have more that are coming um, and other maintenance work that's happening. So I think all of that has to be part of this, this plan. Joe, definitely. What are the, the main issues? And I know we've talked about this in the past and certainly throughout the pandemic. So if we look at businesses, what are the main concerns or challenges facing Gastown businesses right now? Well, I mean, I think it's just getting back to the kind of pre-pandemic um, numbers on the streets. I mean, we're starting to see a real increase in the vibrancy in the neighborhood. There's no question, even in the last two months uh, before cruise ship season started. But now, you know, this month, uh, we're going to have over 60 cruise ships in the uh, in the port over the month of May. And you're, you're seeing that uh, vibrancy tick up in our in our neighborhood. So ultimately, our businesses, what they want is more, more people in the neighborhood visiting, spending money. Uh, and we're, we're starting to see that. So that's that's real key. Uh, we're still, you know, a bit depressed from the office um, tenant because that, that's still down. So um, we're, we're kind of excited about tourist season starting so quickly because that's really making a positive impact for us. Uh, and you mentioned that office tenants. Would you like to see a shift or maybe even more of a mix not to have that reliance so much on tourists, although it is a destination and we know people, mm -hmm. especially from cruise ships, come to Gastown. But would you like to see more of a mix in that bringing back office tenants and workers and people from the surrounding neighborhoods that would also have a reason to come to Gastown? Yes, 100%. Uh, I think for, for us, Jill, uh, locals are a key demographic. Uh, in fact, a lot of the marketing work and events that we you know, put together are really focused on uh, locals and getting them to come back down to Gaston. Because I think a lot of folks changed their habits, right, during, during the pandemic, and they weren't you know, ex kind of exploring outside of their uh, home base. So we're certainly hoping that that happens. And the other thing that we would like to see is uh, you know, more uh, market housing built around the neighborhood. Uh, the Cohen Block is a great example of that, um, where the Army and Navy building is. Uh, there's going to, you know, the proposal is uh, um, 
300 plus market housing, uh, market housing uh, rentals. And then there's also some social housing and then some commercial real estate at daycare. So another project like that would be such a benefit to the neighborhood and also could um, help with the decision around closing Water Street because then you have more of a neighborhood supporting those businesses uh, in, in the um, Gastown area. And do you see a long-term vision where Water Streets would be perhaps a pedestrian-only street? You know, I think anything is is possible. Um, One of the things that we want to make sure happens during this planning process is that, you know, an economic impact study is done on what that would look like um, and and just make sure that we make an informed uh, decision. Now, the good news is we will be test marketing this out. Uh, It's part of the the motion uh, that uh, Councillor Sarah Kirby Young is putting out there. We may not be able to do it this year, but next year, um, finding some weekends where we might uh, potentially close down, um, you know, Water Street and and see what that looks like. We do have some amazing events coming up uh, this summer. The bike race is coming back on July 12th. Water Street gets closed. So we'll have some of those um, test markets even this year and then more to come next year just to see how does this play out and what does it, you know, uh, look like. And then uh, pilots can be a great way to, to, to determine next steps. And how is the neighborhood um, recovering from the, the number of fires as well? We know there have been fires in SROs and certainly uh, that, uh, that part of the community has been quite hard, hard hit. Uh, how is that uh, as far as kind of coming back from that? How, that, how is that going? Yeah, I mean, I think we're seeing less of that uh, in, in and around the area, Joe, so that, that's a positive. And, and certainly the, the biggest impact of that was the Winters Hotel that, you know, burnt down last uh, last February, uh, sorry, last April. And um, so now it's coming to the what's going to happen with that, um, you know, that plot of land. So for, for us, it's we're, we're kind of excited to see what could be next for, you know, Abbott and Water, the corner there. So uh, overall, I would say that the impact of that is, is less, but... We really have that that big, um, you know, that big plot of land that was uh, that that big fire last year. So we, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens there. And businesses as well. I know we've talked in the past. Uh, like any neighborhood, uh, it doesn't seem any neighborhood is immune to ongoing uh, property damage, uh, broken windows, and such. Uh, how is that going? Over the last little while, uh, we've actually seen that get a little bit better in the area too. I mean, it continues, like you said, it continues to be an issue. And um, I, I know that the our, our provincial group, BIABC, um, actually, uh, our conference was this uh, weekend. That actual conversation came up with Premier Eby, and there's a commitment from the government to help uh, with uh, helping small businesses around those vandalism issues. So hopefully, we will have something positive to announce there very shortly. All right. And like you said, so this is coming to council, I think, next week, but Mm -hmm. probably not for this summer. That might be too quick of a turnaround. Yeah, I think some of the pilots, we won't, I'm not sure we'll get the chance to do those this summer, but there will be opportunities because we, like I said, we have the bike race, we have a Meet Me in Gastown events that are coming, and there'll be some examples of uh, what the neighborhood looks like with uh, Water Street, either completely closed or portions of it. So, you know, good things are happening this summer. Folks can check that out. All right. Uh, Sounds very good indeed. Wally, thank you as always for joining us. Thank you, Joe. You have a great day.
Earlier today, the BC Securities Commission put out some information. It has to do with a BC-based crypto trading platform. The allegation being the platform committed fraud, fraud that included lying to its customers and diverting millions in assets to various gambling sites. Joining us to talk a bit more about this is Doug Muir, BC Securities Commission Director of Enforcement. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. This seems like a bit of a different one, I guess, because we're talking about crypto, uh, a crypto trading platform, but this is one uh, a platform that uh, has been found to have committed fraud. What happened here? Well, it hasn't been found. We've made allegations uh, against the crypto asset trading platform and the individual behind it uh, that the platform, there's some fraud involved. And as we've alleged uh, in our notice of hearing, um, they've diverted, we think, around $13 million of their customer assets for gambling. And from what I understand, looking at the information that was released, so the allegation is that this platform operating under the name of EasyBTC, it it allowed customers to buy and sell various crypto assets. And those are names that people will likely recognize, things like Bitcoin and Ether. But what, what is the allegation then of what happened next? Well, we've alleged that they then diverted some of those customers' uh, funds to online crypto gambling sites. And uh, our estimate is that there's about $13 million that was diverted. Uh, We've also alleged that they had advertised that they had uh, cold storage where they... um, and they didn't retain the custody of the customer assets. And we say that that was untrue as well. So those are really the two core aspects of what we say was the fraud. Right. And when we talk about, so uh, it said that uh, they, were, they were telling customers and potential customers that more than 99% of the Bitcoin and other assets were in cold storage. What does that actually mean? Well, that's a storage that would be offline. And I think customers might find that to be more secure form of um, how their assets would be um, stored. And so, as we say, that's uh, that's a false. We don't think that was true. Uh, and in fact, they weren't using cold storage to retain their customers' assets. And it goes on to say then, because of that, then uh, it didn't retain uh, the the custody of the customers' assets. And that uh, going back a few years, so 2016 to 2019, the balance uh, didn't exceed 11 Bitcoin or 20 Ether. Uh, was that how it kind of came to light in that customers were then trying to withdraw those crypto assets, but they couldn't? Right. We got some complaints from from customers that they weren't able to withdraw their crypto assets uh, and they reported to us and then we uh, we started our investigation. Are are investigations like this becoming more common or is it still rare to see uh, something in in this allegation of uh, a diversion of about $13 million in customer assets tied to a cryptocurrency? Uh, well, crypto is is everywhere, and there's a, a lot of <clears throat> crypto asset trading platforms out there and advertising, and people are seeing their advertisements on social media. Uh, so it is certainly a lot of the uh, things that we're looking at in enforcement. A lot of matters involve crypto, uh, and we'd ask, you know, just tell people to be cautious if they're deciding to invest in crypto, and they should certainly check to see whether the crypto asset trading platform that they're interested in is registered with someone in Canada, and that information is available on our website, which is bcsc.vc.ca. All right. Do you know or have any idea at this point how many potential customers or potential uh, investors we're talking about? No, no. Uh, 
all that information will come out uh, in the hearing when we hold a hearing uh, with respect to these allegations. All right. So is that the next step then as far as uh, there, there's going to be a hearing or what happens from here? Right. In, in June, we'll have a, a hearing when we set a date for the hearing. And then the hearing dates will c- come sometime after that. And we'll uh, present our evidence to our commission panel uh, and they can decide whether we've uh, proven these fraud allegations. All right. That seems like a, a pretty big a discrepancy when you look at those numbers again and uh, saying that from back to 2016 to 2019, there were more than 2,300 Bitcoin and more than five or sorry, 600 Ether on the platform. And back down to those numbers I mentioned, down to 11 Bitcoin and 20 Ether. That uh, seems like a very, very big drop. Yes, it can be a big drop. And, and uh, that's some of the evidence we'll present at the hearing will will address those issues. Are there more challenges when you have a hearing again that is involving a crypto platform rather than, say, a more traditional platform? Uh, yes, there can be. Yeah, crypto um, asset trading platforms can be difficult to investigate, and getting getting some of the evidence we need can be challenging. A lot of the evidence may not be located in Canada, so there's a, a challenge there to get it from other foreign sources. And also some of the technology involved in, in tracing the crypto assets and things like that can make these more challenging investigations. And the hearing that's scheduled for in June, is that for so that the company, the platforms will be able to appear and will be able to, to be heard? But is it also a chance for the investors or the, the customers involved or is it not at that point yet? No, not at that point. In June will just be the date when we set a date for the hearings, and those that hearing can be, you know, several months after June, and that's when we can we can present our evidence, and the company can pre- present its as well, uh, and there may be some um, there may be some witnesses who testify as well at the hearing. All right. And is it your uh, experience looking at when we see a case go from this to the point of a hearing? uh, Do you often see people recover any of their assets uh, or or particularly when we're talking about cryptocurrency? Unfortunately, no. In many cases uh, involving investment fraud, their investment's gone. It can be very difficult to find it. Um, The money can be moved outside of Canada quite quickly. And there's often very difficult uh, challenge for these people to try to get some of their investment back. And and more so, sorry, I think you touched on this, but is it more so the difficulty when we're talking about a crypto trading platform? Some of the technology and, and the complexities of it can make it even more difficult for people to uh, to find their, get their money back, for sure, yes. All right. Doug Muir, thank you so much for joining us and for uh, explaining a little bit more about this. Appreciate your time today. Thank you for having me. As you've been hearing on the news, television and movie writers declared late yesterday they are launching a strike for the first time in 15 years. Hollywood was bracing for this walkout and looking at the potential widespread ramifications. So we've already seen some of the late night talk shows say they have immediately gone into reruns. And how long could this strike last? Well, Rick Forchuk is joining us now, a TV Week magazine columnist. Rick, great to chat with you again. Always a pleasure, Jill. Unfortunately, we're not just talking about great new releases and movies. We're talking about this writer's strike. Are you surprised at all that we're seeing a writer's strike? I think the last one was about 15 years ago. Yeah, and I'm not surprised. You're right. It was 15 years ago, uh, 07, 08, uh, by the time it finished. And it changed the landscape significantly 
uh, when it got settled. And that's because, in large part, um, they went right from the end of the writer's strike into the financial downturn, the financial crisis that lasted for 08, 09, and into, into to 2010. And uh, that changed the way people financed movies and television productions. But to go back to your question, am I surprised? I'm not. Um, writers in television particularly do not make the kind of money that they once did. And many people would think, wow, they must just be wealthy, wealthy, wealthy. Uh, here's what happens on a situation comedy uh, like uh, Abbott Elementary that uh, Quinta Brunson created. And she's the head writer on that show. Um, a writer there gets $5,000 a week, but they only work 20 weeks. And for every week after five, the amount you get paid goes down so that the latter numbers are like 37, 3,800 a week. And when you do the math, you find that uh, after they pay their agent 15%, after they pay their manager 10%, after they pay their lawyer 5%, uh, after they pay their publicist 5%, and then they pay their taxes, they're making about thirty-five dollars or $40,000 a year. And in the old days, Joe, and I'm not sure what the old days were, I guess pre-2000, a TV season was usually something in the, in the area of 36 to 40 episodes. Today, a TV season is 18 at the most, more like 12. And that means that the writers don't get paid very much because they don't get very much work. So that's part of the issue. Now, the other issue is how they get paid on residuals and streaming. And that's a big problem because when a lot of this stuff was written, nobody thought that whatever it was you wrote was going to be on Netflix in Australia or New Zealand or in countries around the world. And you're working for pittance. So back to your question, am I surprised? Not at all. These folks need to make a living and they really want to make a better living, Jill. Hmm. And so is that also because of the, the changes that we've seen since that last strike in 2007, 2008? Like you said, who could have predicted how we were consuming our content and how that was going to change over the years? Is, is that because of, of, of the huge changes we've seen? Yeah, it's in large part because of that, um, because now um, the work that you may have done as a writer uh, where you got paid for the original airing, and perhaps two reruns, uh, and that was it. Uh, today, you look and you see what you wrote running on Netflix forever, every day, 25 times a day, and other outlets as well. So I don't blame them for saying, hey, wait a minute, somebody is profiting from my original work. I didn't get paid for being this, this going in, in perpetuity, so uh, help me out here. And it's an issue. It's, uh, and a lot of this stuff is running along faster uh, technology runs faster than we can keep up with it. So uh, when you sit down to write something, it's not unusual for what you wrote to not see the light of day for two or three or four years, especially if it's a movie screenplay. And during that time, things change so much. Uh, the outlets on which it can be shown change. The amount of money we pay for streaming services change. Um, a, a lot of people look at their bill for cable perhaps today and say, you know, I used to think that was a big bill. But when I add up all the $3 and $4 and $8 and $9 for Amazon Prime and for Paramount Plus and for Netflix and all of these other things, uh, CBC Gem, uh, wow, I'm spending a lot of money to consume this stuff. And the writers are not getting a piece of that, Joe. 
And is it different than, I'm fascinated by that formula and uh, like you say, and I think everybody will, uh, will be able to, to, to understand that there aren't as many episodes as if we go way back, let's say to the days of Dallas and Love Boat, mm-hmm. uh, not nearly as many episodes anymore. Is it the same though for actors when we see things on Netflix or whatever streaming service, are, are others uh, like those who acted in the, the shows, are they getting bigger residuals? Yeah, no, they're not, Joe. And it depends on what kind of contract you signed. Uh, typically, the actors will get paid for three airings of whatever they starred in. Uh, if they don't own a piece of the show, then that's all she wrote. Give you a good example. Seinfeld. We know that Seinfeld is airing somewhere right now as we're speaking. And that people made hundreds of millions of dollars on Seinfeld. Those people were Jerry Seinfeld and Larry David. They created the show. They own the show and they own the characters. And that means that the person who played Kramer, Michael Richards, Julia Louis-Dreyfus, who was Elaine, they got paid for an initial run. But beyond that, because they had no ownership in the show, as it's sold currently and into syndication and to places like Netflix, they don't see a nickel of that. And um, so actors are in the same boat to a large respect as the writers. But since we don't see the face of the writer, we don't know who these people are. We didn't see them acting. We sort of put them to the back of our minds and focus on the actors. But it's a tough business for writers. I know lots of people who work in that business as a writer, and I tried to be one myself. I was a Writers Guild of America West member at one time, trying to write situation comedies and uh, have a whole bunch of great uh, rejection letters I could show you someday. Uh, but it's, uh, it's a tough business, and it's a tough business in which to make an honest dollar for a long period of time, Joe. Well, I would love to do a segment on that one day. I'm going to circle back to that at some point and uh, remind you. Uh, I'm curious, though, is it different? You mentioned it depends on the contract you signed, and the actors are part of a guild as well. Is it more, are are writers able to, I mean, I guess if you were a really good writer, could you make your own contract and you you wouldn't be subject to what you said boils down to $35,000 to $40,000 a year? Yeah, you're right. That, That can happen. If you are a very gifted writer with a track record that is a phenomenal one for big money stuff, uh, yes, you can go outside the Writers Guild of America guidelines and you can get paid by the studio and you can also claim a piece of the action, uh, you know, a piece of the box office, the back end of the box office particularly. And a lot of people have made a lot of money that way, but uh, way more people have made nothing at all. Uh, They've uh, flipped the coin and said, okay, I'm going to take a chance and I'm going to go for a piece of ownership of this project. And the project doesn't amount to anything. Um, Jill, for every 10 pilot episodes that are shot, only one ever goes to series. And for every 25 series that are on the air, uh, nine of them don't even make it to the end of their first year. So as you look down the road as a writer for the work that you did, it's a rocky, rocky road. It's hard to know what's going to happen and it's hard to know how to make a living for in the long term. And, and there are some people listening right now that, that I know well that uh, have been making a living as writers for a long time in television. And they're saying, boy, right on, right on. Is that ever true? It used to look like we had a great future mapped out. And today we just don't know where we're going. Hmm. So in the past as well, we've seen pretty lengthy strikes. I think uh, the one in, uh, that we referenced at 2007, uh, 2008, that strike lasted 100 days. There have been even longer ones. Uh, I mentioned off the top, so the, the late night talk shows have gone into reruns. Certainly if you're a fan of Saturday Night Live, that probably is not going to be happening this coming weekend. What happens if this strike goes on, if we have another 100-day strike? 
Yeah, well, the bad news is what happens is we as viewers find alternatives. And, um, you know, I don't want to watch a rerun of Saturday Night Live, nor do I want to watch a rerun of The Late Show. Um, so I'm going to find something else to watch. And guess what? There is an abundance of content from which to choose. Uh, History Channel, just on your cable network, you all kinds of stuff that we pay for that we hardly ever watch. Well, what this does is a, a writer's strike that forces shows into reruns or no runs, uh, forces us to find something else to watch. And we do. And you know what? Sometimes we don't come back. Uh, that happened to me with The Tonight Show. Uh, after the writer's strike uh, in 08, 07, 08, uh, I stopped watching it because it went dark, and I just never got around to getting back. And, and I've, uh, I respect Jimmy Fallon as a talent, but I can't say that I watch him with the same degree that I watched Jay Leno or David Letterman or before him, Johnny Carson. So we as consumers find another way. It's kind of like if you have a favorite restaurant in your neighborhood and they have a fire in the kitchen and they're closed for three months. They have a grand opening. But guess what? It's never quite the same because those regular customers who used to look forward to their Saturday night date night uh, now find someplace else to go. And if they're happy with that someplace else, they just don't come back, Joe. Right. And I would imagine, too, given, like you said, the amount of content that is out there on the various streaming devices, that doesn't put as much pressure on the other side to settle with the writers in that if, they're, if, if consumers are going to be happy enough going somewhere else. That's exactly right. And then there's a ripple effect because um, much of what we will see on television in the fall TV season that typically starts in late September, early October is being written and produced right now. Well, with the strike, it's not being written and produced. So we won't notice until we get to the fall what's not there. Uh, And we won't notice what shows could have been, should have been, might have been there, but aren't showing up. And we'll forget And again, we find something else to watch because there's such a preponderance of content, just a a massive amount of content that um, we won't miss some of this stuff for a very long time, Joe. Right. Do you think, though, there will be shows that people are, even if you watch a ton on streaming devices and elsewhere, you're right, it's come September, October, it's like that back to school time of year. And if you have a particular show or shows that you really like, you look forward to it starting up again and it's the fall and the fall season. Do you think that's when, if the strike is still going on and it does impact that, that's when the public will really take notice? Exactly. That's when um, the new episodes of Grey's Anatomy, for example, that uh, even after all these years still has a huge audience, uh, they won't show up and and you'll be disappointed. Uh, The Bachelor, which is a huge hit ratings wise, won't show up. We say, well, wait a minute, that's a reality show. They don't need Mm -hmm. writers. Ah, read the credits at the end of any (laughs) reality show, whether it's Survivor or or The Bachelor. Uh, There's a list of writers credits like mad. So uh, those are all written. They're all scripted to one extent or another. So, yes, favorite shows that don't appear in the fall are going to cause some angst among viewers, and uh, they'll go looking. And there is some pressure on the networks because networks are a business. So there's some pressure on them to get this sorted out or find another way. Well, they haven't found another way yet. It's very hard to replace writers. They're creative people. They work hard. And um, now they want to work and they want to continue to produce. And uh, everybody just needs to chill and, and get this thing settled, Joe. Right. And we'll certainly be watching it and seeing. I know one of the numbers that I saw, too, was that that last strike cost $2.1 billion to Southern California. Yes. Will, do you think BC's, the film industry here, is that also going to take a big hit? It'll hurt us. Yes, indeed, because there's a lot of serious television that's done here. And uh, when that comes to a grinding halt, that uh, puts a lot of, not only the actors out of work, but the caterers, the people who run the mobile dressing rooms, 
lot of the, even the traffic flag persons who make sure that everybody gets into the parking lot property. A lot of people depend on that business in our province and here on the mainland, especially, Joe. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.